Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this June edition of Stratford Talks, the monthly podcast that takes you deep into discussions on geopolitics, security, and global affairs. I'm Marla Moore. And I'm Ben Sheen, and we're your hosts for the show. We have two parts to our podcast today. First, we'll be chatting with military analyst Sim Tak, who's part of a team here that's conducted war games that examine the cost of a strike against North Korea's nuclear facilities. Then, Vice President of Intelligence Fred Burton will be in the studio to talk about the Secret Service and just when they get involved in the U.S. presidential election cycle. And don't forget, if you have any questions or ideas for a podcast topic, drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. Or follow up with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, where our handle is at Stratfor. There's been a great deal of concern this year about North Korea's ongoing attempts to develop a viable nuclear program. And that's not without reason. The North has conducted a number of test launches this year and appears to be trying to move the needle into the next phase of its program. That got Stratfor analysts asking a hypothetical question. What would a U.S. strike against North Korea's nuclear facilities look like, and what costs might it entail? We recently published a five-part wargaming series on our website that explores the question in detail. And with us today is military analyst Sim Tak, who's going to give us a brief overview. Welcome, Sim. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So I think the question, and it's one of the first things we address in the series, is really, why now? We know that North Korea has been developing its nuclear capability for some years now. In fact, since the mid-80s, it's been refining various uh, nuclear products. But why, what has brought this to uh, the world's attention now, Sim? Well, one of the, the main concern that is bringing everyone's attention to this case right now is the fact that North Korea seems to be on the verge or might have potentially already crossed this line into having an actual deployable nuclear weapon. Um, some sources claim they already have one, but it, it's a big difference from you know what North Korea has done in the past, which is demonstrate that it can explode a nuclear device in, in underground testing to then move on to actually having it in a functional warhead on a functional missile. On top of that, and this might be the reason why we are seeing this acceleration on the North Korean side that leads to this, there's there's kind of an opportune time for them to do this now, uh, given the political dynamics in South Korea, and perhaps more importantly, the United States, where the electoral situation is causing a hiatus for any any radical action against North Korea. What do you mean by that exactly? Can you go into some detail about the different stages of political cycles in those two countries? So basically, in in the United States, as we're going into the elections, there's there's going to be a reluctance for President Obama to make any rash decisions. You know, his last act in office probably not be declaring a, a potential war on North Korea before leaving the office to the next president. That that would put the U.S. in kind of a difficult position. So from that reasoning, North Korea could see the United States as potentially paralyzed for the next few months, um, the next half year, basically, while North Korea itself um, is also going through a lot of leadership dynamics where, where you know, the new leader, Kim Jong-un, is still establishing himself. We just had the, the party congress in North Korea, which also really leveraged that nuclear capability as a way to show the the success and the leadership of the party and himself. Um, so all of these political elements are kind of coming down to this point in time. But of course, you know, one of the main determining factors here are, are the scientific achievements within North Korea, where, you know, their their level of advancement in the nuclear program has allowed them to get to this point. And um, of course, you know, they're, they're further potential to push this further along is, is what allows them to continue this, this tempo. 
So it seems like Pyongyang is making something of a gamble because they're effectively betting on the West not being in a position to make the decision to respond. And at the same time, it seems like they're putting a lot of faith in their ability to actually come up with a viable nuclear deterrent, which, as we know, is not as easy as it looks on paper. Although many nations have had effective intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles for for years, since the, the 1950s, and it's affected the old technology. North Korea is still developing this technology. Um, what are the steps they actually need to to follow to gain a credible deterrent, Sim? So at this point, and we're first of all, we're not entirely certain which point they are at. There are some claims saying they already have warheads ready to be mounted on missiles. A lot of the missiles, we don't know exactly how they perform. Um, North Korea has a habit of actually bringing certain missiles or artillery systems into operation before they are actually tested. So uh, so at this point, while we don't know where they are exactly, the, the big things that we are looking for um, as they push ahead with this, with these tests are, first of all, more missile tests for, for them to show their, their ability to actually um, take whatever warhead from point A to point B. The, the most notable point B being the United States, if they, if they achieve that range. And then separately from that, there is the warhead itself, where you need to be able to miniaturize a nuclear device to fit into the warhead. Um, right now, we don't uh, we don't know whether they have actually done that. And any of the tests that happened of nuclear devices were done with separate devices underground. So that doesn't necessarily prove that they have one small enough to, to put on that missile. And then you also need to have that warhead survive. Um, so that's when you get to reentry testing. They've done some of that testing um, on the ground uh, using uh, big rocket boosters, basically, to simulate the uh, the reentry into the atmosphere. Um, we could see more of those tests, but eventually we'll, we would have to see a test where a missile takes an actual warhead back into the atmosphere. As part of this wargaming study, did you examine the possibility of whether anyone other than the United States has the capability to take out North Korea's nuclear program? So in our effort, we specifically focused on the U.S. capability. Um, this is partially because of the the initial assessment that we made where the United States is, is most well-placed to actually conduct an operation like this and also has that potential interest to conduct this operation. The other countries that come close to to having the same capability and interest would be countries such as South Korea and Japan, but their air forces, their their specific capabilities are less advanced than those of the United States. So in terms of really considering the the potential for an operation, the the threshold is is lower for the United States and that's why that's where we focused. And you mentioned a couple of good points earlier, Sim, which is the fact that we don't know how far along the North Koreans are. They've conducted a lot of tests in isolation, but we've not seen them fit all the pieces of the jigsaw together. And then actually, there's, you know, the impetus to strike as well. And I imagine, given North Korea's reputation, they're not just going to sit back and let any strike be targeted against them, are they? No, and that's actually where the heart of our, you know, our war game actually comes in here. First, we looked at how feasible is it actually for the United States to conduct this attack. Um, but then the bigger question and the, the more important one from our part is what will the cost be? What will North Korea be able to do in the case of such a strike? And, and what does that mean for the United States as well as for its allies in the region? So any any direct impact on South Korea and Japan, which is more likely, but that will actually affect the behavior of the United States. 
So the wargaming study is actually very interesting because it involves a number of scenarios. And I would imagine the first question would be, under what circumstances would the United States take the decision to launch that strike and what would it entail? And then there, there are a number of follow-on questions from that. Yeah, exactly. And and that's one of the, the really big things to keep in mind here, too, that even though we are looking in depth into, you know, what would it look like if this military option was chosen and what would the results of it be? We need to continue to see this in the framework of, you know, this is one of the several options on the table. Um, th- there are basically three different ways in which the North Korean nuclear question can evolve. Um, the first one of which is North Korea could obtain a functional nuclear device that it can deploy and nobody acts against it. North Korea has the nuke and keeps it. The second option is that the United States or who knows, maybe even someone else goes in, conducts a military operation to halt the nuclear program or to destroy nuclear weapons that North Korea at that point may have already produced. And then the third option, and and this is one that we really want to want to make sure people have in mind in, in consuming this product is the negotiation path there. There will be attempts to negotiate North Korea out of the nuclear program. And while we are focusing on what is the cost of the military strike, um, the real important thing to take away from that is how will this this cost affect the decision to either continue along the negotiation path or abandon negotiations and seek the military means to achieve the same ends? And certainly there are a number of things which will inform any decision that, that Washington makes, and not least of which is is the scale of unknowns that surround North Korea. There's a lot of information that simply isn't known about North Korea, not only to casual observers in the West, but also to the US military. And it's very difficult to get a read on how much the US military actually knows in terms of where to strike, what to strike, and the level of of proliferation of North Korea nuclear capability. Certainly, those are decisions which will weigh heavy on any any political decision made by the White House. Correct. And, and it's not only the question of what do we not know about the nuclear program, you know, which locations might there be finished nuclear devices at? Um, what underground lo- uh, facilities are there that play a part in the nuclear program that we don't know about or that we might not be able to hit that easily? There's also the question of what means does North Korea have to to strike back at South Korea, Japan, or, or perhaps even the United States directly? So in, in assessing that whole cost-benefit relationship, there's there's a lot of gaps that, that could push this, this whole effort in a completely different direction. There's also a lot of variables to the question itself, because if you're looking at it from a U.S. standpoint, as a, as a military decision maker, you're going to be asking, do I do a limited strike or do I make a holistic strike? And there are a lot of different outcomes based on your decision-making capacity for either option. And the largest of them involves time and counter-strikes. Correct. And if, if you're a military decision maker or political decision maker on, on the part of the U.S., one of the things you might consider is, you know, given the, the potential risk of, of a return of fire from North Korea, we want to, you know, not just strike the nuclear program, but deal a decisive blow to the military capacity of North Korea. At that point, you're talking about a much, much more extended air campaign than simply, you know, striking a few critical locations that shut down the nuclear program, at least temporarily. 
So in, in, in that dynamic, you know, it, it becomes a very much a give and take between these different expectations and decisions. And, you know, rather than talking about a few potential scenarios, you start talking about a system. And, and that's where the the wargaming dynamic becomes really interesting, because then we we basically model that system and, and we can kind of see how that system operates rather than trying to predict a thousand different futures. Right. And it's a question that South Korea and Japan alike would be very interested in, in having a place at that table when that decision gets made. Exactly. And even from the U.S. US side, it's, it's important to have them at the table because just removing the nuclear capability from North Korea is not the end game in, in the U.S.'s Asia policy. There are much bigger things to deal with, um, quite literally, uh, with China, for example. Um, you, you need your assistance from South Korea, from Japan, to maintain that position in the Pacific in general. And I think that really is the value of wargaming, because as you go through that process, it exposes a lot of second and third order effects, not only the way that any action would play out regionally, but also the scale to which the US would have to get involved. Um, it would be fairly, oh, I'd say easy, but it'd be fairly straightforward to conduct, uh, to conduct a limited surgical strike against North Korea to destroy limited objectives. But the minute you start talking about any kind of like mass defensive to depose the, the North Korean regime, uh, you run the risk of, of tipping your hat to North Korea, to basically giving the game where you're up to something. And that, that clearly is, is something that needs to be considered as well, because as we mentioned before, you know, North Korea uh, has a, a track record of being fairly unpredictable in their response. Yes, that's correct. Um, w- one of the big things here, apart from the consequences of the action, uh, would also be, you know, what preparation does it take? How does that preparation set the stage? Um, for the follow-on actions. And and specifically on the unpredictability of of the North Korean return, one of the big questions that arises there is even if you choose to go for that very limited surgical strike, does that guarantee that the North Korean response will also be limited? That could be an expectation of planners, of decision makers, um, if it gets to that point. But there's nothing that ensures that. Um, so even if you choose to only go in with that limited way, you might you might still be pulling the entire burden of the response on yourself. So, Sim, it appears that despite accusations of being reckless or even foolhardy, Pyongyang is actually playing a fairly careful game here because they are trying to obviously develop a nuclear deterrent, which would then give them a certain amount of leverage regionally. But also, they don't want to overplay their hand and actually force the West to take action if they can absolutely avoid it. So what do you think would be red flags for Washington? What do you think might actually prompt the United States to take action against North Korea? Well, and this is actually the what you're saying now brings us back to the timing issue that we were talking about earlier. And I think that's where I'm, you know, there are some very obvious red flags. And it's just that the things that are currently happening when you move into that re-entry testing, testing uh, increase the tempo of your missile testing, that is basically raising those exact red flags. But I think that North Korea has timed it as such that they are able to push up all of those red flags at a time when the U.S. is less likely to be able to just deal with them uh, in the most effective way. But on the other hand, one one other thing also to keep in mind is that, you know, we are putting this in the context of you know, the the North Korean intent being of establishing that nuclear deterrent. That is one way for North Korea to safeguard their future, their integrity, 
I don't think we can rule out that the, at this point that North Korea is willing to negotiate their nuclear program. We've seen Iran very successfully engaging in negotiations with the West on their nuclear program. And even though there are continuing doubts about what their real long-term interest is there, we could see a similar thing happening in North Korea. Just because we're focusing on the military potential here doesn't mean that we ca- we shouldn't consider that. And it's I think I think in, there's many arguments to be made in favor of that negotiated solution where it's kind of become a pattern for North Korea to basically turn security into a commodity. Uh, they don't have a lot of notable exports that they, they can trade with the rest of the, the world, uh, definitely with the political situation they've gotten their sum, themselves into. The one thing that they have been able to consistently trade with the West is security. They generate situations of insecurity, whether that's through naval skirmishes, um, artillery bombardments across the border, or a nuclear test. And and by creating this artificial sense of insecurity, um, not that the insecurity isn't real, but they, I mean, they create it artificially out of nothing. Um, they have created a commodity to start negotiations over and then receive commitments from regional countries from the U.S., whether that is in the shape of aid, food, oil, whatever other goods they have received in the past, um, or whether it comes in the shape of of political concessions in, in those regional negotiations, that becomes a really useful tool for them. So the the establishment of the nuclear deterrence is, is not the only way that, that we should consider the North Korean regime is thinking of here. That's a very good point, and I think it really gets down to the bedrock of our analytical approach, which, however crazy, quote-unquote, any national leader may at times appear to be to the Western world or, or to the wider world, we believe that there is always a rational approach within the constraints of geopolitics that is is unfolding in those moments. And I, I think you see that very clearly in North Korea as as an impoverished country that has established itself in this way. Even though the, the negotiation path is an important one to consider, this particular series, which again, we encourage everyone to visit and read that on strap4.com, uh, is interesting because there's one final point that I'd like to draw out, which is as you examine those strike options, the cost is sort of a compounding cost over time. It, the cost of any strike is inherent at any given time, but the longer the United States or whoever might wait if they are going to strike, the higher the cost will be. That's correct. One, one of the things that we've already seen is just look at the last few years, the, w- the way that North Korea has developed to the point where now they might have functional nuclear devices. They have been able to field new, longer range, heavier payload artillery systems. If a strike had been conducted years ago, we could fairly comfortably say that the cost, the potential cost of it would have been lower than it would be today. And going into the future, we could expect a continuation of that trend where, you know, especially if North Korea continues to develop their nuclear capability, um, when they have longer range missiles, when they prove the effectiveness of those, when they have more nuclear warheads, but also as they continue to develop conventional weapons to strike back at South Korea, potentially um, start putting more emphasis on development of chemical and biological weapons, which they have a certain capacity for. They just haven't been ramping up that production. So if, if all of those things happen, then yes, over time, the the longer you wait with a strike, the less good of a deal it becomes. 
Absolutely, Sim. That's a really good point. And thank you for being with us here today to explain a little bit about what we touch upon in the series. And clearly, this is a very sort of high-level view of what we go into a lot of detail in over the five parts on Stratfor.com. So I would definitely, if you haven't done so already, read the series, have a look through and explore the options, because it's definitely eye-opening looking at uh, what there is on the table here. Sim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For our next segment, we're glad to welcome back Stratfor's Vice President of Intelligence, Fred Burton, for a discussion on the U.S. Secret Service and its role in protecting not just presidents and their families, but presidential candidates. And as we look to July and the official nominating stages for the candidates for both the Republican and the Democratic parties, uh, this is an interesting aspect of the election cycle uh, to consider. So thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me, Marla. So, Fred, the Secret Service has often been referred to as the President's Secret Army and is assigned to protective duties, both at the White House and wherever the US President happens to be. The Secret Service also protects foreign dignitaries, facilities, major events and the families of former heads of state. But surprisingly, it was created in 1865 to investigate and suppress counterfeit currency. So with a new president elected into office later this year, what are the challenges facing the Secret Service and how will they have to adapt? Good question, Ben. I think when you look at this in context, there's two pivotal moments, I think, in the history of the Secret Service that uh, our listeners would like to know. And the first was in 1901 when the Secret Service began protecting seated presidents, and that was after the McKinley assassination. And the second incident was in 1968 uh, after the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, and before that, uh, presidential candidates were not protected. So the Secret Service picked up coverage for presidential candidates in 68. And then, uh, of course, they've had presidents since 1901. And when you look at this from a sheer bandwidth issue at election time, that's when the Secret Service really is strapped for resources because they have multiple candidates running around the country. They have what is called the formers which are, for example, uh, former President Bush 41 and former President Bush 43, and then, of course, President Clinton. So you have uh, permanent details on them, and then you have heads of state. You have international travel with President Obama traveling around the world. So uh, when you have a presidential campaign year, uh, the stress is really on the Secret Service. And as a result of that, uh, that does create a lot of issues, uh, such as uh, morale, because the agents are never home. Well, and this has been a particularly interesting year and and very stressful, I would think, for the Secret Service, given that we started the campaign season with 17 potential candidates from the Republican Party alone. Surely there's there's a vetting process. I mean, they were not all assigned to Secret Service detail. So can you walk us a little bit through how that process works and who is chosen for Secret Service protection at what point in the cycle? It's really very interesting. Uh, Major presidential and vice presidential candidates uh, are identified by the DHS secretary since the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Correct. Uh, The Secret Service now reports to the DHS secretary. For years, it was under Treasury. Uh, And then uh, there's a consultation process by the DHS secretary with uh, the Congressional Advisory Committee, which is made up of the Speaker of the House, the House Minority Leader, the Senate Majority Leader, and the Senate Minority Leader. And then there's very specific criteria which uh, are fascinating when you think about them. 
One, uh, the the candidate has to be publicly announced. Uh, two, there has to be a degree of prominence with that individual. Uh, three, he ha- he or she has to be actively campaigning and entered at least ten state primaries and received matching funds of at least one hundred thousand dollars and contributions totaling at least ten million dollars. So in essence, there is a vetting process of candidates uh, before uh, Secret Service coverage comes into play. But at the end of the day, this is also a judgment call predicated upon threat assessments. For example, President Obama, before he came into the White House, received coverage very early based upon threats that he had received predominantly from the white hate uh, organizations so in essence, there is uh, uh, a baseline threat assessment that also comes into play and a judgment call by the U.S. Secret Service. So clearly it sounds like the Secret Service will be doing their own risk assessment when it comes to uh, how likely a candidate is to attract unwanted attention. I was wondering, how well do Secret Service integrate if there's existing security measures in place? Because I imagine some of the candidates are already you know, kind of high-profile individuals. Uh, to what extent, you know, does the Secret Service blend seamlessly into their existing security measures? Ben, the process works very seamlessly, meaning, for example, when you think of uh, President Bush 43 transitioning from being the governor of the state of Texas into the Oval Office, as governor, he had protection coverage with the Texas Department of Public Safety. And in essence, there's a hand-in-glove relationship during that transition period. And the same thing with President Clinton when he was the governor of Arkansas before he rotated into the White House. And I can vividly recall working those inaugurations, for example. So there's also a training aspect that uh, a lot of our listeners uh, perhaps are unaware of. But uh, since the Secret Service does uh, a tremendous amount of protection, They're viewed as the gold standard when it comes to providing protection for heads of state for the world. So there's a lot of governor protective details that are trained by the U.S. Secret Service as to their methodology, their standards, their best practices when it comes to physical security measures, background checks, EOD, bomb dog sweeps, hazmat and technical security countermeasures. So uh, the Secret Service kind of has set the bar along with the State Department Diplomatic Security Service in an international kind of environment. Uh, so, uh, And they're looked upon uh, for guidance and training and also threat assessments. The uh, fascinating part with that, too, is let's say you're a, a governor or a cabinet-level official and you have received a email threat or a threatening letter or a threatening telephone call, it's not unusual for the U.S. Secret Service to be brought in the loop to evaluate that from a psychological perspective and uh, help to database and to look at those individuals. Because what you'll see over time with some of these threats that surface and manifest themselves is it's not unusual to have a person that has threatened a governor has also threatened a cabinet-level official or threatened the White House or threatened a presidential candidate or the actual president. I had no idea that there was a sort of a farm team system set up by the Secret Service. Very well put. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about just 
these particular candidates that we have in, in the running today and the front runners. I mean, Hillary Clinton has not traveled without a Secret Service detail in many, many years, given that she was first a first lady prior to being a presidential candidate and secretary of state. Donald Trump, interesting consideration here. I'm sure that he's had his own private security detail since um, he was old enough to walk, <laughs> I'd imagine. But uh, at what point was he assigned a Secret Service detail? This is an individual that has had private security in place for not only his financial empire, but just uh, who he is for quite a long time. And living in New York City, uh, his private security team would be working very well with the New York City Police Department, for example. So uh, the this coverage, the transition from private security to the U.S. Secret Service is very similar to what it is in the governor kind of space because it's not unusual for your private security folks to be people with backgrounds like mine where you've come from the federal system and you know how that works. But in essence, uh, it's really uh, unbelievable to uh, most people to understand that complete protective umbrella that comes with the U.S. Secret Service because in essence, you have an, an entire package that comes which includes... Uh, Everything from the Secret Service Uniform Division with metal detectors and, and um, counter-sniper teams to uh, how individuals are checked uh, regarding uh, access lists for meetings and events and so forth. So uh, the system's extraordinarily robust. And it kind of moves as, as a protective umbrella. So, for example, to visualize this process, you have uh, former President Clinton who's still got U.S. Secret Service protection. And when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she had State Department DSS protection. So you have a lot of joint movements between the two organizations and joint command posts and the sharing of information that goes back and forth, which is another important aspect here that takes place behind the scenes, meaning because the U.S. Secret Service are protecting individuals running for the highest office in the land, that brings with them the intelligence community apparatus as well that's scraping the world for threats. So if the CIA or NSA or DOD picks up threat information, that's very quickly sent to the U.S. Secret Service so they can evaluate that and adjust their security posture as needed. It's interesting to consider all those really tightly coordinated movements between so many different layers of security. But in Ted Cruz's case, he's no longer a candidate, but I understand that he turned down Secret Service protection. Correct. Uh, that's my understanding, too, that he uh, formally declined protection, which is not unusual at times. I've seen that uh, even with uh, visiting foreign dignitaries from time to time over the years. But uh, in essence, it's my understanding that Senator Cruz had private security, retired Secret Service personnel that were watching him. Uh, and uh, I don't know the thought process for why he declined that. Uh, but also bear in mind that since he's a seated senator, that the U.S. Capitol Police also has a protective intelligence division where they look out for high-profile senators and congressmen and women that are traveling all around the world and make notifications to U.S. embassies and do a lot of logistics quietly behind the scenes. So uh, surprisingly in this business, in the protection world, although it sounds like it's a kludge with a, a lot of different components that are moving back and forth, what you'll find is that uh, threat information 
specifically what we call protective intelligence information, is very rapidly transmitted across um, all the different agencies, and then the threats are very thoroughly investigated. So, for example, uh, the U.S. Secret Service uh, has concurrent jurisdiction to investigate threats against the president with the FBI. So it's not unusual for the FBI to be brought in on a threat against the president, for example, and it would be worked jointly. And it's not unusual for the FBI, the Secret Service, and the State Department, DSS, to work jointly on that kind of threat if it affects uh, State Department protectees and so forth. So uh, the system does work, and surprisingly, it works very well for uh, uh, a lot of the negatives that take place in Washington and a lot of the turf battles that occur uh, in this arena. There's been so much disaster over years, whether you go back to Lincoln, to Kennedy, to all the different uh, assassination attempts, that uh, uh, most of the agencies doing this work behind the scenes take it very, very seriously. And threats are very quickly, very quickly and rapidly jumped on and investigated really very thoroughly, regardless of where they happen around the world. It's not at all surprising to consider that there are threats against candidates, particularly U.S. presidential candidates of either party. Do you know any specifics about any of the threats to these candidates? I don't know any specifics pertaining to the candidates that's running now, but I would have no doubt that the threat stream... Uh, just in general, based upon uh, the uh, uh, the polarization of our nation here and the extremes on each side right now, uh, the Protective Intelligence Division of the Secret Service has got to be very, very busy running down threats, uh, regardless of where they surface and, and, and who they're directed against. And uh, I know that it's not unusual for these threats to roll in 24 by 7 at times, and the Secret Service has a very robust system to evaluate them very quickly to try to get to the bottom of uh, the actual viability of of that. Uh, look, uh, there's a lot of disaster in this business if you look at this from a historical perspective that pretty much has shaped the course of history. If you think about uh, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, in all probability, he would have been the president of the United States. Uh, if you look at the assassination of his older brother John F. Kennedy, and look at the the course correction our, our country went after that, and then you can look at uh, the presidential assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan with John Hinckley. So uh, events like this can, can change the world very rapidly. So um, what the Secret Service has done historically is, based upon the various attacks, adjusted their model to try to prevent that specific kind of attack from taking place. For example, after the JFK assassination at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, the Secret Service developed a counter-sniper capability to look for that kind of specific threat. After the John Hinckley attempt on President Ronald Reagan, the Secret Service deployed more uniform division assets in order to watch the press pen for example. So uh, they do do a good course correction uh, after the fact of fixing potential vulnerabilities. All right. After action reports, I think, would be particularly important. Very much so. And even you can see that with the recent kind of uh, events that's unfolded at the Secret Service with fence jumpers and so forth, that uh, uh, it's very, it's, it, it's a tough job, Marla, uh, when you're 
you're trying to protect individuals uh, 24 by 7 and uh, giving them the flexibility to to meet in the public. Uh, so the Secret Service has got an extraordinarily difficult job to to keep all that whole range of threats, from strategic threats to to espionage to toxins and chem bio to uh, guns to bombs. So uh, it's a difficult job. And I think what makes it especially challenging for the individuals who are actually out on the ground doing the job right now is that 99% of everything they do will never be known. The security they provide is protective security, and if they're doing their job right, there's never any incident and everything moves pretty much seamlessly. But if that one thing goes wrong on the day, then that's what everybody tends to pick up on and remember. Without a doubt. Uh, in essence, uh, all these previous attacks are dissected at the Secret Service Training Academy they're taught from a lessons learned perspective, from a historical context. Uh, they do a good job at uh, identifying their failures and saying this is why this worked. Uh, this is how uh, the bad guy got away with the operation. And this is what we did to fix it. And uh, they do a good job of self-policing themselves. Uh, but when you start looking at this at times, Ben, uh, it also boils down to a human error kind of aspect. Uh, somebody specifically not doing their job to check something, which has caused something to occur, uh, which is the human error aspect. So uh, it's not a perfect science, uh, the, the the art of protection, but for the most part, uh, they do it right. And um, when you start thinking of all the different moving pieces that go into play, for example, People have absolutely no concept of what it takes to move the President of the United States from Washington, D.C. to Austin, Texas, or to Los Angeles, California, Then, on an overseas trip, the amount of resources that, that go into play with the U.S. Embassy abroad and the coordination with foreign intelligence and security services from air cover to secure shoots in the air, on the ground— to just the logistics behind this are really kind of remarkable. Earlier, you mentioned that in the assassination attempt against President Reagan, that John Hinckley stepped forward from the press pool. And I think that's very interesting to consider now, because given that the Secret Service is very strapped for resources and, and the stresses are very high, we've still seen reports recently that they're actually vetting the journalists that are planning to cover the Democratic and Republican conventions this summer. And that it has to be, number one, a tremendous extra strain. I mean, they've never done that before. So I'm curious what you see going into that and what's driving that trend. And what is the process by which you would vet a journalist? I also think it's very interesting uh, because uh, I know from just working large-scale events, whether it be UN events or inaugurations or so forth, the, the volume of name checks of just hotel personnel and staff and so forth are pretty daunting. Now, you throw journalists into the mix – the interesting thing here, Marla, is I don't know if this is very specific threat-driven. Let's say, for example, and I don't know this to be a fact, but let's say this is a plausible scenario. Let's say that uh, the U.S. intelligence community has picked up information that uh, an individual is going to try to uh, attack uh, a protectee via the press pen or under journalist cover. It's not beyond the realm of possibilities in a terrorist kind of scenario. You have to think about the night before 9-11 when Massoud was assassinated by the uh, press team uh, under a Rusoft operation. Uh, 
So uh, the Secret Service is is probably thinking in context of what kind of scenarios could a group like uh, the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda uh, or uh, the mentally disturbed threat kind of problem that could try to utilize uh, press credentials to get themselves into an event where they could uh, perhaps carry out some sort of an attack. It would not surprise me in the least for this to have been threat-driven. And that threat could have manifested itself in looking at some other attack somewhere else, or they've picked up some chatter that this was going to be this kind of operation, therefore we better check all these journalists to make sure. Also remember, too, Marla, that you have a tremendous amount of foreign journalists that are also going to be traveling in for these kinds of events, and you have two individuals that are extraordinarily high profile, and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, that's going to draw the eyes of the world upon them uh, as uh, nation states try to anticipate who's going to be the next president of the United States. So uh, the other aspect here, and I failed to mention it too, was that uh, it's not unusual for some nation states to use press as cover for espionage agents. So uh, there could be an espionage aspect for why they want to ensure that they're running thorough background checks on foreign press or journalists that are coming in for these conventions. So given the multitude of risks and the sheer amount of personnel that require protection, um, how is the Secret Service actually resourced, Fred? Do you feel they've got adequate uh, finances and personnel to actually carry out their job? I think if you talk to the agents, which I do, they will tell you they're understaffed and overworked. And I think that uh, every four years they know that, especially with uh, campaign years. That's always been one of the the constant complaints that I hear, for example, and I certainly have worked around them and with them enough to know that that's reality-based because you don't spend a lot of time at home uh, during uh, the campaign year. But I think when you put it in context, Ben, you have to think, too, that the Secret Service is not doing this alone. When they're working, for example, a large-scale event like a, uh, a major venue, they have the bandwidth of the DHS fusion centers. They have the National Intelligence collection apparatus behind them. Uh, they have the state and local police that are assisting them. And certain states and cities are better prepared to deal with this than others. For example, New York or Washington, where large-scale events are pretty much an everyday occurrence. And organizations like the D.C. Police and NYPD know the drill, and they'll roll out whatever it takes to help you do your job. So uh, they do have the ability to call upon a lot of assets to assist them. I do think that at times, though, they could use more people, uh, meaning um, I, I can say this just uh, as I'm getting older, uh, that uh, the job of protection is in, in many ways uh, a young person's job. And you'll hear that consistently uh, across uh, the follow car as you're setting with uh, persons and and just talking about your day-to-day work that, uh, as you'll see on a lot of these details today, you'll have older and older people working them at times. And uh, I'm not saying that's a negative thing, but uh, there's only so many years that you can do this kind of work uh, until you wish you were doing something else. And uh, typically... Uh, what happens uh, when you hear the rumblings in the follow car and the hallways as people are standing post is, you know, I can't believe I'm still doing this here 15, 20 years later. 
you know, by now I thought I'd be the uh, special agent in charge of a field office. What am I doing here? Uh, but uh, uh, I think that crosses the uh, entire public safety arena at times, uh, Ben, to include even in the military. Fred, thank you very much for such an interesting discussion. We appreciate it. Thank you, Marla. It looks like that's all we have time for today. But once again, please reach out to us anytime on social media with your comments or questions or drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. To catch the North Korea Strike Options series or for in-depth analysis on any of our past topics, be sure to visit stratfor.com. Thanks again for listening. Look forward to more podcasts in the future and stay safe.